Welcome to Reformation Roundtable, episode number 21. My name is Joe Stout. Reformation Roundtable is a group of people here in Lewis County who are seeking to prepare the soil for planting a Reformed church. Specifically, we're looking at the Chehalis Centralia Twin City area. Lewis County does not have a biblically faithful Reformed church, and we'd like to see that change. So we've been meeting on a weekly or every other week basis to discuss different doctrines of the Reformation. We're seeking unity on all of these things. We know that we won't all have the exact same thoughts, but we are seeking unity. We're trying to have biblically aligned hermeneutics, biblically aligned theologies as it relates to salvation, the sovereignty of God. And today we're going to be looking at the covenant. And specifically, we're going to be really diving into the question of first, what is the covenant, why it matters, and finally, who are the people of God or who are the people in God's covenant? We're going to be listening to a teaching by Toby Sumpter out of Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho. And the, the, this can be found if you have an Amazon Prime account. It's called Reformed Basics. And in that, Toby Sumter and Douglas Wilson go into some of the basics of Reformed theology. And talk number two is called What is the Covenant? Or it's an intro to covenant theology. So I really recommend you go and you watch that. Watch all of them. They're very, very helpful. I'm going to be pulling the audio from it, but it was originally a video presentation. So if you hear some some different uh, kind of uh, animation noises and whatnot, that's because it was originally meant to be watched. One of the reasons why this discussion is so important is because we are using this as a prelude to discuss sacramental theology, the doctrines of baptism and the Lord's Supper. As we talk about those two things, if our hermeneutics are opposed If one person's a covenant renewal man and the other person's a dispensationalist, you're not probably going to be able to find common ground with those two hermeneutics. Both are based on scripture, but they both can't be right. And so I am definitely coming at this from the pro-covenant theology standpoint. That is what the discussion is centered around, but it's also meant to find alignment within the hermeneutic of covenant theology. And so as you listen to the teaching and as you listen to the discussion that follows, know that it's all a prelude for uh, in two weeks, we are going to be discussing baptism. We're going to be discussing questions like who should be baptized? When should they be baptized? What does that baptism signify? Those are questions we'll get into not today, but next time we meet. In the meantime, though, we're going to be diving into that one major question. Who are the people of God? Who are in God's covenant? And so I hope you enjoy the teaching, and I really hope that you join us if you'd like to be a part of what we're doing. Go to reformationroundtable.org, and there'll be a contact form on that page. Fill that out, and I'll get back with you right away to let you know the next time we're meeting and the topic that we'll be meeting for. If you're listening to this when it first publishes, the next time we meet, it's going to be on baptism, and it's going to be an awesome discussion. I can't wait for it. In the meantime, though, I hope you enjoy this teaching by Toby Sumter and the discussion to follow. Here's the big idea. What is the covenant, and why does it matter? So first off, what is a covenant? 
A covenant is a solemn bond sovereignly administered between two or more persons with attendant blessings and curses. Or, to put it simply, covenant is just the way God relates to his creatures. Covenant matters for at least three reasons. First, only the covenant explains how we got into the mess of sin, and only covenant can explain how Jesus can get us out. Second, God's covenantal dealings with his people throughout history show us the kind of God we serve, and they teach us how to read the Bible and the rest of history as a deeply connected, unfolding story. Third, putting those two things together, God's covenantal character teaches us how to live before God day by day by faith, seeing our story as taken up into his story. First off, only covenant can explain why Adam's sin affects you and me. The Bible says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Romans 5, verse 12. So, the original covenant was between God and Adam. God not only created man in his image, he established an ongoing relationship with him. In that first covenant, often called the covenant of life or the covenant of creation, God promised eternal life and blessing to Adam on the condition of his perfect obedience to God's word, specifically being fruitful, multiplying, and filling the earth, taking dominion, and not eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what Paul explains in Romans explicitly is that Adam represented the whole human race in this covenant. God established this covenant, not Adam, and so it was, in this sense, altogether gracious and kind. The garden was loaded with good things, and God graciously promised to be in fellowship with Adam, and he promised eternal life as Adam was obedient. But he also clearly promised death if Adam disobeyed and ate the forbidden fruit. Every covenant has a covenant head, a sovereign, who takes responsibility for the covenant, and there is a law agreed upon responsibilities, obligations of each party, and there are blessings for obedience and faithfulness or curses or consequences for disobedience down through generations. These are the marks of every covenant bond. So remember three words in particular, representation, responsibility, and continuity. The reason we have inherited Adam's sin is because Adam represented us in the garden. He was responsible for all of his descendants, and the blessings of his obedience or disobedience would have generational consequences. This is related to the continuity bit. God deals with every person as an individual, but God also deals with us covenantally as individuals related to one another in various ways, like families, churches, nations. At the most basic level, everyone is either in Adam or in Christ. But God ordinarily works through the institutions of the family, the church, and the state. More on that in a bit. The thing to note for now is that everyone born since Adam has been born covenantally or federally related to him, and therefore in sin. And therefore, the only way out of this mess is to be reborn, to somehow get a new covenantal or federal head, and that is exactly what the gospel promises. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness 
shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Romans 5, 17 and 19. So the nature of covenant is at work in both directions. Being covenantally related to Adam results in our sinful state and death. But it is also by the same sort of relationship, a covenantal or federal relationship, that the obedient death of Jesus makes many righteous. This is the answer to the question, what does the death of a Jewish man 2,000 years ago have to do with me? Well, apart from God working through covenants, nothing at all. But if God works through covenant, and there is a way to be joined to that Jewish man's death and resurrection, then it has everything to do with you. Jesus represented us. He took responsibility for us, and his obedience establishes blessing for everyone who trusts in him. Now let's talk about covenantal story. As we have seen, there are two basic covenants in the history of the world. The covenant that God made with Adam, called the covenant of creation, or the covenant of life, and then the covenant of grace, made with Christ, and renewed with all those who are bound to God by faith in his promises. Within the covenant of grace, the Bible speaks of the old and new covenants. The old covenant began with Adam after the fall when God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent one day. That covenant was renewed with Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and Ezra, but all these covenant renewals were looking forward to the promised seed, Christ, who would crush the head of the serpent and fulfill all of those covenants in one final permanent covenant that will never pass away. That's the new covenant the final form of the covenant of grace. Viewing God's working in history and in scripture as related and connected is another application of the covenant. And the main point is that God doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. When he sends forth his word, it doesn't get lost in the cosmos. His word will not return to him void. In other words, what God promised in the Garden of Eden, that the seed of the woman would conquer the seed of the dragon, is the storyline of all the covenants culminating in Jesus, the great dragon slayer. God's covenant renewals with Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and Ezra are not detours or cul-de-sacs or dead ends. They're chapters in the unfolding of a single story, a single glorious epic. They add depth and detail, but they are part of the same unified plan. It's the same gospel that saved Noah and Abraham and Moses. They looked forward to God finally dealing with sin and death, and God reckoned them righteous by faith, just as he does with us. This idea of a unified story establishes the idea of covenant continuity. What God was doing with his people in the Old Testament was not fundamentally different from what he has accomplished and established in the New Testament. The Old Testament was like elementary school. Paul says the era of the law was like being under schoolmasters or tutors. But when God's people come to maturity in Christ, they do not reject everything they were given in their youth. Christians are no longer under the law in the sense that Christ is the fulfillment of the law, the law all grown up in the flesh. If a woman is receiving love letters from her fiance, it would be utterly foolish to prefer the letters once she's gotten married. But it would also be strange for her to burn all the letters as though they weren't at all related to her husband. Likewise, 
The church receives the Old Testament as preparation for Christ, as a true revelation of who God is and what holiness and justice are. But it all becomes clear in Christ, and so it should all be received through the lens of Christ. Christ himself teaches us to do this when, after his resurrection, he admonished the two disciples who were leaving Jerusalem, thinking that Jesus was dead. They didn't recognize Jesus when he joined them on the road in their sorrow. And when he found out why they were leaving and so sorrowful, he asked them why they were so shocked. Since the Old Testament was all about the Messiah coming and suffering first before entering into his glory. Luke says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, the whole Old Testament, Jesus explained the things concerning himself. Luke 24 verse 27. The story culminates with Jesus breaking bread with the two disciples. Luke says that when Jesus took bread and blessed it and gave it to the disciples, they finally recognized him. The whole story is, is like a true parable. In order to recognize Jesus, we need to see him in Scripture, and specifically we need to see him in the Old Testament. When we see Jesus in the Old Testament and in the breaking of the bread, we will know him as he truly is. We'll recognize him. Just as we are united to Christ covenantally, so too is the whole Bible. It's all about Jesus. He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning, the middle, and the end. He is the whole story made flesh. In another story, an actual parable in Luke, is the story of the rich man and poor Lazarus. As it turns out, both of the men die, and the rich man ends up in torment in Hades, and Lazarus ends up in paradise. In the parable, the men can speak to one another across a great chasm, and the rich man cries out in agony for water, and then, when that proves impossible, begs that someone be sent back to warn his family. But Abraham tells him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But the rich man says that won't work. But if someone comes back from the dead, then they will listen. But Abraham replies, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rose from the dead. Luke 16, 19 through 31. Again, we see the clear point that to know Jesus and his way of life is to know him first of all in the Old Testament, in Moses and all the prophets. If we can't see him there, we won't even recognize him in his resurrection. So what does his story have to do with our story? The Bible clearly teaches that the central way of keeping covenant or being covenantally faithful is by faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And that is the pattern for all the faithful. Faith is the gift of God so that no one may boast. But when someone is given the gift of faith, they see their own sin and rebellion against God clearly and they see the perfect obedience of Jesus all the way to the cross representing them, standing in their place, taking responsibility for them and their sin. Saving faith looks to Christ and Christ alone. And the Bible says that in that moment, a double transaction takes place. All our sin is imputed or transferred to Jesus who suffered for it completely on the cross and all the righteousness of Jesus, all his obedience and perfection is imputed or transferred to our account. We become part of the body of Christ. And so his story becomes our story. In the Old Testament, Israel was taught to celebrate the feasts and keep the laws of God. And when their children asked them why, they were to explain the story of the Exodus as their story. We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Deuteronomy 6, 20 and 21. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians, 
Paul says that all of Israel was baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate spiritual food and drink, and the rock that followed them in the wilderness was Christ. And these things were written down as examples for us, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 11. In other words, the entire story of the Bible is the story of Christ, and therefore to believe in Jesus is to be joined to the entire story of the Bible. The Christian church is the new Israel of God, the same family of God stretching from Adam down through Abraham and out to the end of human history, all united by faith in Jesus. There are at least two important lessons we need to gather from this. First is the principle of covenant succession. In the ordinary course of things, God works through generations, parents passing their faith down to their children. This is done in the context of the broader church or covenant community, not in isolation from it. And even godly civil magistrates can do their part to discourage evil and encourage righteousness. But the primary responsibility for teaching children the faith is given to parents. Deuteronomy 6, verse 7, Ephesians 6, 4. And when parents trust the Lord for the grace to obey this command, God promises to bless their children with saving faith, showing mercy to thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Exodus 20, verse 6 and 34, verse 7. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children to such as keep his covenant. Psalm 103, 17 and 18. This has been an explicit promise given to Abraham. I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Genesis 17, 7. And a little later, for I know, Abraham, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. Genesis 18, verse 19. This same principle is assumed in the new covenant in the biblical qualifications for elder, which demonstrates that by God's grace, believing men like Abraham can instruct their children such that they grow up believing, Titus 1, 6. Likewise, Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God will call, Acts 2, 38 and 39. If God was planning to make a significant shift in his covenantal dealings, this was a really important place to do it. There are other matters, like distinctions between clean and unclean animals and circumcision that the New Testament labors to clarify are no longer in force. But here, the New Testament draws a parallel with the Old Covenant. The promise is to you and to your children. The children of believers are included in the covenant. The other important truth to take away as we think about walking in the covenant is the fact that there are true and false members of the covenant. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul's particular point is that we learn from the examples of all those who came under God's judgment in the wilderness. They were all baptized, they all ate spiritual food, and had a sort of knowledge of Christ the rock but they did not know Christ as their own rock. They did not know him in a saving way, and so they died in the wilderness. Likewise, Paul says in Romans that a true Jew is not merely one outwardly by circumcision only, but rather a true Jew is one who is also circumcised inwardly with the circumcision of the heart. This establishes the public or objective nature of the covenant. Just as the covenant of marriage is established by a public exchange of vows with signs and witnesses, 
so too the people of God make and renew covenant publicly through signs and vows. In Galatians, Paul makes it clear that just as circumcision was the sign of the old covenant, baptism is the sign of entrance into the new covenant. Just as old covenant Israel renewed covenant through the reading of the law and the sacrifices and celebration of the feasts, so the new covenant Israel, the church, renews covenant through the reading of scripture, offering our sacrifice of praise and worship, and in celebrating our new Passover, the Lord's Supper or communion. But all of these public or visible or objective realities invite those who participate in them to believe in Jesus. Salvation is only by faith, and so it is not enough to go to church or be baptized or take the Lord's Supper, or sign a card, or go through a new members class. To return to the very first point, in order to be saved, you must have a new covenantal head. You need him to represent you, to take responsibility for you, so that his blessings may come upon you. So you need a father transplant, or as Jesus says, you must be born again. You must be given a new heart of flesh, a circumcised heart, a baptized heart, a heart sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus. This is the promise of the new covenant and the sure possession of all who believe. So let's review. Number one, what is a covenant? A covenant is a solemn bond sovereignly administered between two or more persons with attendant blessings and curses. Number two, what does the idea of covenant have to do with how all mankind is fallen in sin? All men are born in sin because of Adam's sin. He was our covenantal or federal head. He represented us, and so his guilt applies to all of us, and the curses of his disobedience fall upon all of us. Three, what does the idea of covenant have to do with how mankind is saved in Christ? Just as all men are dead in sin because of Adam's sin, so too all who put their trust in Christ are made alive. By faith, Christ becomes our new covenantal head. His obedience becomes ours. The blessings that fall upon him become ours. Four, what is the name of the single covenant of salvation that stretches from Adam after the fall through the end of human history? The covenant of grace. Five, what do we call the two parts of the covenant of grace before Christ and then in Christ? The old covenant and the new covenant. Six, how are the old and new covenants related? The old covenant is like elementary school and the new covenant is like being grown up. We don't do everything the same way as they did in the old covenant, but the old covenant was teaching us true and important things about the character of God, his justice and holiness and mercy that are now revealed clearly in Christ in the new covenant. Seven, why does reading the Bible covenantally matter? It matters because it teaches us to read the Bible as one single story about God's plan to save mankind through Christ. It helps us to see the themes and motifs of that one story growing and expanding and unfolding until they emerge fully in Christ. Eight, how does the Old Testament relate to Jesus? Can you cite two New Testament passages to demonstrate your answer? The Old Testament is all about Jesus. In Luke 24, Jesus explains to the two disciples from Moses and all the prophets how the Messiah had to suffer before entering into his glory. In Luke 16, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Abraham says that if people do not believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if someone comes back from the dead, alluding to Jesus. Nine. 
What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 10 is the relationship between Israel in the wilderness and the New Testament Christians? He says we have a very similar covenantal standing. They had baptism, spiritual food and drink, and Christ the rock following them, but they didn't believe and were destroyed. Paul says that was written down for us, that we might not be like them. 10. What is the principle of covenant succession? It is the general pattern of God working through generations of families to pass down the faith. This is to be done in the context of churches and godly societies, but the primary responsibility is given to parents to teach their children to love and obey God. Embedded in this pattern is the promise that God will be the God of our children. Children of believers are included in the covenant. 11. What is the sign of the covenant in the new covenant? Baptism. 12. Is everyone in the covenant saved? No. There are true and false members of the covenant. Only those who are looking to Jesus in true faith are saved. As we think about covenant theology and, and the things that we've kind of brought tonight to as far as our understanding of covenant theology goes, was did anything show up there that was like, oh, I've never thought of that before, or I disagreed with that, or anything along those lines? You know, one, one thing I would ask the group is, um, if someone presents to you and, and says, I want to read the Bible, how do I read the Bible? I mean, is, is our response usually start in Genesis and work your way to Revelation? Or do we start, do we usually recommend that they go to the New Testament, perhaps a gospel, you know, John or something like that. Then the reason I ask is that, um, you know, I've, I've tried reading the Bible, and, you know, from beginning to end without fully understanding the New Testament. And I've heard it likened to this. It, it's like if you read the Old Testament without the New Testament first, it's like trying to do a jigsaw puzzle without ever having looked at the cover of the box. And, it, you know, I thought about that. I think, you know, if, if I read through the whole New Testament and I have this direct exposure to Christ and I see the theology, you know, Paul, the, the systematic theology in Romans, and I look at the epistles and, and all of this, and then I go back to Genesis and start reading there's, I think, more clarity. I think it's just logical. So for me, fundamentally, looking at things covenantally, it helps me see what's, understand the, the entire story, the full counsel of what's happening in the entire Word of God. Yeah, that's good. That's really good, looking at it. One of the things that kind of stuck out to me was the idea of Lazarus, um, Abraham telling Lazarus that if the rich man can't see, can't find Jesus in the Old Testament, if his brothers can't find Jesus in the Old Testament, they're not gonna, they're not gonna listen to him if he comes back from the dead. Yeah, yeah, and, and, which in fact he did. Right, he did come back from the dead. He's, it still wasn't good enough. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He did come back from the dead. Well, Jesus, he was because Abraham was alluding to Jesus coming back from the dead. I think one of the things that um, that stuck out to me, maybe in a 
I have a little better understanding, perhaps, of how Pado Baptists get their position after after hearing covenant described a little bit more in, in a in a articulated way, like was done there. I I think I can now see. Okay, well, you're trusting in the promise of the covenant. You're trusting in the promise of the covenant, and that. Uh, and that the uh, the parents being a vehicle for imparting the faith onto onto children, and God uh, offering that promise, and also offering promises in a generational way. So I can I, I now I think not necessarily like I'm not I'm not going to hang my hat on that yet. Kevin, get me there, Joe. Good try. But I feel a little it's a bit. Journey. Yeah, it's a it's a journey. It's a journey, right? <laughs> Uh, but I feel I, I, I now gather where that is derived from in a much more clear way than maybe I had prior to hearing this. The one thing, not that I'm always looking to be confrontational, but mm. the one thing that I did find interesting is that the, there was a mention there of, of um, the covenants being um, the, the, only, the only act of participation. And maybe I misunderstood, but the only act of participation on, on, the, on the part of people was one out of faith. But my understanding is that the Abraham the Abrahamic covenant it, that one had no conditions tied to it. But most of the other ones, like the Mosaic Mosaic covenant, had six hundred and thirteen conditions tied to it. So I don't I don't know how that one how that one is not how that one is tied entirely to faith. I mean, maybe it's faith that God is, you know, God has given us these laws, but they, it was, it seemed rather legislated in mm. separating themselves out. So I don't know. And that, and that was kind of a passing thought. And right. I maybe wasn't processing what he was saying as clearly as, as I should have. But, Coming you know. to works or slash life is conditional, right? I mean, isn't it conditional? That was it, conditional. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, but the first one, but then he said all the other ones after. I, I thought he said the, all the ones after that were uh, faith-based, and I could have been. <clears throat> well, I, I think what he was saying, um, if I remember correctly, is that um, this is not a, this the covenant that God's making with us is not a covenant that we are both um, like we're doing our part and God's doing His part. So in, in Genesis, of course, God passes through the the split animals and said. May this be a picture of what happens to me if I don't fulfill my promises to you. But right before that, it, it, we were told that Abraham did something. He believed God, and that was credited to him as his righteousness. And um, with, with that, um, and with all of these, whether it's the Mosaic Covenant, or the Noahic Covenant, or the Abrahamic Covenant, um, there is always attendant curses for disobedience but the blessings are there for obedience um, but as far as the making of the covenant we're completely passive in that so God as the supreme authority makes the covenant with us and he swears by no one greater than himself it's not like it's not like you know he's saying okay I promise you and you promise me he's saying I'm swearing by myself because there's nobody greater than me I don't have I'm not going to swear on my mother's grave I'm not going to swear, swear on the family bible I'm swearing by myself because there's no, nothing greater than that. And so I think he was saying in that particular, not that there isn't differences in the covenants, but that within that context, God is not like 
saying like, hey, it's not like a marriage where we both decide we're going to get married. God's saying, hey, I'm the, I'm, the, I'm the king and you're my loyal subject. So we're saying that we're having faith in God's faithfulness in his covenant? Yeah. Because he's, he's yeah, like you said, he's swearing upon himself. Right. Like, there's no one greater than him. So yeah, as so, the initiator of the covenant. Right. So when we see the rainbow in the sky, it's nice that it reminds us that God won't destroy the earth again. But it's not there to remind us. It's there to remind God. That's the point of the covenant. That he puts his bow in the sky. <clears throat> he puts his bow in the sky so that he'll remember. And then we get to see him remembering. But it's like we're passive as far as that goes. He's keeping the covenant regardless of our faithfulness. Now, we get curses for disobedience in the covenant. We get blessings for obedience in the covenant. But we're not, we're not maintaining the covenant, if that makes sense. So this, this is actually one of the big ideas, and I, this isn't a direct tie-in, but where we're kind of going with this is one of the big ideas I'm hoping that we can spend a little time thinking about is this idea that people can be a part of God's covenant and not be regenerate. They can be a part of God's covenant, they can be one of God's covenant people and not be elect or saved or born again or regenerate. And that, and that kind of, I have a question going back to the pedo-baptism. Joel, can you relate trust and expectation? How, how do those, in other words, you know, I, I have an unsaved, my son is not saved, and I absolutely unequivocally trust God because he's the only one that can save him. Mm-hmm. Where does my expectation fit in? Sure. That's my question to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, Covenantally, I guess. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So uh, as far as the way I would view my own children, I would view my children at birth being a part of God's covenant. Okay. So they're, they're in the covenant. Now, we all know that there's um, apostasy within, <laughs> within, within the church and within Christian kids especially. Um, and so being a part of the covenant is not the same thing as being regenerate. That's, there's, there, there is a, a difference there, and we can get into, I've got some, some scripture on, on, on supporting that. Um, but as far as the way I expect, I expect my kids, all of them, to love Jesus. I expect them to love Jesus at a very young age, like before they know any different. I expect them to love Jesus because I love Jesus, because I teach them to love Jesus. And then as they grow older, I expect them to continue to love Jesus more, less depending upon my guardianship and more depending upon their own true faith that's coming from within them. Um, I don't believe that unto the, the, the expectation or the faith that I have that God will be a God to my children should not lead me to apathy. It shouldn't lead me to saying, I don't need to do anything. It should lead me to raising them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But maybe a, a, a key difference would be, I'm not going to raise my children as though they're little heathens. I'm going to raise them as though they're little Christians. That's why I baptize my kids. And then, if they show themselves something other than a believer as they grow older, if they are not showing um, fruit that is consistent with repentance and regeneration, then that's going to be something that... Um, with some, of our, with some of our kids, I expect them to, to never have a, converge, a conversion experience. 
with some of our kids, I expect them probably to have a conversion experience. And, what, and what's your expectation of God? My, my expectation of God is that every one of my kids will love him and have children that will love him and they'll have children that will love him. Okay. Um, and I, I mean, I, it'd be, it'd be, uh, it, I couldn't expect anything less than that. Now, ultimately, God deals with us as individuals as well as part of a larger covenant community. And so as far as each individual child, that has to be a real relationship between them and God. But they have tremendous covenant privilege by being born into a Christian family. Privilege that a little Muslim kid doesn't get. Privilege that uh, Noah and Benjamin didn't have until they joined your household. Uh, Privilege that um, is totally unique to them, just in the exact same way that the Jews had immense covenantal privileges by being Jews. And it was clearly not because of their great faith. It was clearly not because of their great obedience. They were known as a peculiar people. They just, God chose them for whatever reason he decided to. And they had privileges because of that, and they were expected to be faithful. Many of them weren't. Okay. But that wasn't on God. Okay, that's, that's helpful, very helpful. Yeah. Thank you. Do we, do we think, as a group, that, uh, that you, do we think that uh, to be a part of God's people, like, uh, is synonymous with regeneration or with being elect? Or, like, maybe the elect status is not really elect status and you can lose your salvation? Or, or what do we think about that idea of, you know, 1 Corinthians 10, you know, these are all, these, these are all of our people. They, they ate the spiritual food. They drank the spiritual drink. They had rock, the rock who was Christ following them. And yet they're dead in the wilderness right now because of their unfaithfulness. Ava, do you have a thought on that? What's conversion? Um, conversion would be like the, the, the time where you stop being a heathen and start being a Christian. When Jesus takes your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. For some people, that happens. They live very wickedly, and then they come to a point where they they understand that God is ki- the King, and they want they they want to be his um, his son or daughter, and so he gives them a new heart. That's what conversion is. So why did why did you say you believe some of us kids will get converted? I, I was speaking more in general. Like I would expect uh, I would expect some to to never know a day that they don't love Jesus. That's certainly what I'm praying that they'll never know a day that they don't love Jesus. But I would also expect, or I would also think it would be likely that some of you guys would have a very real experience with God that you didn't have before. Because it says, because Jesus says of the Spirit, he moves where he will. He's like the wind. You can't, you can't pigeonhole him. You can't control him. He's going to move. And when he moves, things happen. Okay. So I, I think to answer your question about the idea of people being part of the covenant versus being converted. Um, this is a little bit from the hip here, but I think that I think that it is quite possible and it is very good for individuals who are not necessarily converted to be part of the covenant to participate in a common grace. But I think the key is that there needs to be a pretty heavy vetting 
of individuals who would be in a position of leadership to ensure that there is a true conversion or a true relationship with Christ at the farther up in a position of authority that you have in a, in a church. Mm. Oh, you're talking about leadership. I'm talking about leadership in church family. Right. Mm-hmm. The reason I say that is because, you know, you can have... We're, we're called to we're called to share the we're called to share the gospel. We're not called to actually convert people. Hmm. The Holy Spirit's going to convert people, and so you're going to have individuals that are participating in the covenant, which part of the covenant is the church. They're going to be coming into the church. They're going to be in that space, and of course, you need to you know you need to watch out. But at the at the end of the day, them hearing the gospel is better than them not hearing the gospel. And so you, I think, I think I guess the, again, this is very much from the hip and just kind of mm. thinking about it. But I think that it's important that it's important that we don't that we don't prevent the gospel from being heard by as many as can hear mm. it. And yeah. so if we're looking at we're looking from a more open door perspective. We're going to speak truth, and we're going to we're not going to uh, change. Uh, you know, it shouldn't change fundamentally the theology that is taught, the scripture that is taught, but there are going to be people that walk through the, the church door that are part, that appear to be part of mm. and are not. What will be the sign that they are part of the covenant? Like, how will you know that they're part of the covenant? Well, I think, I think, you, I, I think the, the only way to really gather that information is through relationship. I don't think that you just discover that in, I don't think you discover that in a singular moment. Mm. Um, I, I think that you need to you need to see fruit. What does that fruit look like? How is that how is that bore out? Um, I I don't. I mean I don't know. I I don't think that somebody who is part who has part of a relationship with Christ can bear fruit. Right. I would agree. With that. So it, this isn't like a fake it till you make it scenario, right? Where it's like okay. You can be part of it, and that I do think that happens a lot. You get, you get Christianese. You get people who know how to speak. Oh yeah. Know how to speak in Christian terms, and then all of a sudden they realize, well, wait a second, my my faith was vacant. Yeah. There was nothing there. There wasn't anything of substance, and that's when you start seeing things. Now, do I think that you can have somebody who is truly converted that falls into sin? Absolutely, I think you could, I, do, I do think you could have that. I don't think that the two are the two are not necessarily like synonymous with each other. But I, I you know, like there's you know perfect purity after conversion. I mm. think that that's that's an errant thought. But I do think that there is there is a heart after God. There's a there's a there's a uh, an unnatural pursuit that the Holy Spirit gives us to pursue Him. Are you describing these things as it relates to the people of God? I'm describing them as it relates to the. I'm describing it, yes as it relates to the people of God, but I, I think that there are going to be people who fall underneath the. Did the Lord gave us? He he gave us a great example with the rich young ruler, who, you know, kept the law and all did all of that. And Jesus, <laughs> Jesus said, "Okay, that's that's wonderful. Now go sell everything and follow me." Well, now we. We tie in the fact that Christ, the Lord, told us that there is a cost to following me. And it's one thing, and it's everything. 
That's, there is a cost, and you must deny yourself daily and pick up your cross and follow me. And uh, wouldn't, you, wouldn't you say, Les, that that's a sign of being elect? Like, that's a sign of being, uh, having a new heart? What, absolutely. And right. what, you, know, you know, if the, if the rich young ruler would have forsaken everything, then, then, then you have, I think, a, a pretty established, a pretty good answer there that, okay, this, this guy's the real deal. I mean, if I remember right, you guys are more knowledgeable than me. You know, a lot of the disciples, when they were called, when Jesus chose them, they literally dropped everything. They, were, they dropped everything. Dropped their nets. I mean, they dropped their nets in their place, their, their, their livelihood, their property, and they dropped it for a guy who said, when asked, where do you stay? And he said, the foxes have holes and the birds have not. The Son of Man has no place to... And, and then Jesus didn't tell him, well, you know, where are we going? Well, go this way. He said, just follow me. And they did. I mean, that's you know, uh, an absolute example to me that you are genuinely, effectually called, and, you know, you respond to that, because a dead person isn't going to respond to that. But then there's the, yeah, one of you is a devil, you know, type of thing, too, so I, I, I don't know. So, so let me, let me interject yeah. that. And yeah, go, go ahead. Because, so we listened to this thing tonight, and, um, you know, as usual, I have to kind of bring us back. Uh, because, I mean, we're not talking really about pedo-baptism right. uh, yet, anyways. Yeah, but there's right. nothing wrong with it. That's fine. Bring it up. But he didn't address any of that. So why don't you answer this question? Because as Toby presented, uh, and I couldn't keep up with all 12 of his points there. I'm still trying to catalog them for my pictures. <laughs> but, but I mean, I'm not really sure I see something there that I would have anything to disagree with or necessarily think, wow, this is revolutionary covenant theology. is so different than what I thought. Mm, right. I mean, am I, am I missing something that would be different than... Um, <laughs> As you're going, as you're coming to faith, uh, whether you're Abraham, mm -hmm. your faith is not just faith; it's faith in God. Right. As you're coming to faith in Christ, same same thing. So, what's the difference, really, in the big picture of believers and believers? Uh, you know, whether you're covenant right. or if you, you know, have some innocuous errors of dispensationalism <laughs> here and there. Right. Or, yeah. <laughs> I, I would say um, I would say that it's important for us to to see this as being one unified story, one yeah. unified message with one unified people. Um, we, we don't we don't have like God in the Old Testament and then God in the New Testament, and He's working fundamentally different. Okay, but but less than really. I mean, just because less would say, well, boy, here you have somebody that's interested in Christianity, let's. Let's Throw them in the book of Leviticus kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, we right. wouldn't want to do that because that wouldn't make yeah. much sense whether you're covenant or not covenant or, or however you'd look at sure. that. Sure. I'm just saying I, it seems like there's a lot of parallelisms here with just regular Christianity. I, I think you're whatever. I think you're right. Um, yeah, and, and and so, you know, if we look down at the uh, the people of God uh, on the your sheet here, and I've got six different questions. They're super simple questions. If we look at question number one, who are the people of God in the Old Testament? Um, well, we all know that it was it was the Jews primarily, but 
But it wasn't just the Jews. It was anybody who wanted to call upon the name of the Lord. You know, so you had Ruth. She was uh, a Moabite. And she, she said, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And she was welcomed in. Um, you have Rahab, of course, who is, you know, actively a um, lady of the night. And, is, uh, and yet God is saving hey, hey, her. children. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I said that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> you were good until you opened. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now we got some questions. Right. Now, we got, now we got the answer. So, so before you before you go before you go through, I so Frank, can I ask you a quick question about your church experience? And not to not to make a major digression here, but um, have you been part of? any like um, assemblies of God evangelical type churches in your in your time in your life assemblies of God yeah, yeah or, or evangelical or charismatic churches uh, charismatic so evangelical throws me off though. well not even I mean I, I meant charismatic I meant charismatic charismatic yeah, right uh, no not really okay yeah so as somebody who Grew up at between basically eight, between eight and like let's say fifteen years old. That was yeah. part of a charismatic church. You right? Me, yeah. yeah. As somebody who did, um, one of the things that I can say is that this right here helps covenant theology. While it may have, well, that may be part of the underpinning of Christianity as far as like how it's understood, it's not declared in a very articulate way in those spaces. This kind of idea and this in this framework, it's it's just it's not it's not talked about. So the I think that the question you're asking is like, what's what's the difference between this and the run of the mill Christianity? Because it sounds like run of the mill Christianity. Run of the mill Christianity, I'm afraid to say, is quite a bit more superficial. It doesn't really tap into tap into things, and what happens is, is it creates a very nebulous character, uh, or creates a very nebulous idea of who God is in his in his character. And so, at least from my at least from my experience in the in that, one of the things that I, I would say that happened when I started attending churches that had reformed preaching, reformed theology, mm-hmm. is that fundamentally everything was pinned in scripture. Everything was everything was like okay. This is connected to scripture, and this is how God operates. And so, actually, it completely changed, at least for me, my perspective of who God is and how He operates in the in the world. And so, um, I I think that um, while this does exist in those spaces, it's not explicitly talked about. It's it's not, I wouldn't say it's rejected out of hand. But if you started asking about covenant theology, I would wonder, I would wonder if certain pastors at some of the churches that are local local here would actually be able to define it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's a good point. Um, I don't think it, it's not necessarily a salvation issue, though. It's not a yeah, salvific right. issue to be able to go, hey, what is covenant theology? That that's a, that's a different thing, but it definitely has helped me. So. I didn't see anything I could disagree with up there. Let's put it that way. Go ahead, Les. I was just going to say, there, there is a reality here, though, that 
There's not a time when God relates to a human being and he doesn't do it covenantally. Hmm. The relationship of God to man is always in covenant. Mm -hmm. I think that's what Toby mm -hmm. was saying, and yeah. I think we agree with that. So now we're kind of, I think you get, you start moving into a realm where you're nuancing a little bit, but right. um, anyway. So, so here's, a, here's a really, really practical, like nuts and bolts way of, of looking at this. Um, you've got little kids, or you've got kids, um, and how does God see your kids? Does he see them as little heathens until they make some profession of faith? Or does he see them just like he saw the little Israelite children um, as being a part of the covenant and they need to be trained up, Deuteronomy 6, trained up in the, in the law of the Lord and in the, in the fear and admonition of the Lord, just like Paul tells us, he reiterates that in the New Testament, nothing has changed, but the little Israelite baby that's born is given the sign of the covenant on day eight and he's treated as an Israelite from from day one or day eight. <laughs> well, um, yeah, go ahead. How, how does Luke, with the new boys in your family, mm -hmm. just instantaneously in there, you know, you you begin right off the bat. I was I thought you were going to use cite the parental child relationship mm -hmm. as a, as a covenant. Yeah, because yeah. you know that's how we that's how we relate and deal with them. If this, then that. If not this, then that type of thing, you know? Especially and with the child's place in the covenant and making the covenant. Right. The child has no say in the covenant yeah. at all. So like you said, uh, Andrew, that understanding covenant theology is not a salvific issue. On one hand, that's 100% true because we're totally passive in it. But on the other hand, the covenantal reality that exists is salvation. Thank, that, you, for, thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. That's not, I, yeah, I was definitely yeah. not saying that. Yeah. I was just saying, no, I, was, I knew you were. Yeah, I was saying there, yes. Okay. Yeah. You, you know, covenantal allows Luke to immediately establish a relationship with, with mm. Noah and Ben that, it, that equals, you know, uh, Caleb and Ethan and, and, mm -hmm. and that, that's, I think it's just a natural thing because that's how we, that's how our vertical relationship is going. You know, sure. we would expect it to be that way this way. Does yeah. that make sense? Or? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's every, every subsequent generation is not reinventing their relationship to God. Now, it has to become real to every generation. Every generation has the responsibility to to this generation uh, who are called by my name will, will humble themselves. Every generation has to do that, but it's not a new relationship. It gets renewed, but it's not, it's not new like novel. And I, I get more of the impression that our tendency is to um, focus with every person on the novelty of our relationship to God, as opposed to the the idea that we relate to God through covenants, and they're the covenants that we've been relating to God with since the beginning of time. And I think that this all, I think this all matters because I think that if, if um, the covenant of the Old Testament and the covenant of the New Testament are the same covenant because they're all based on Christ, then our children should be treated the same way in the New Covenant as they were treated in the old covenant, if not better. I mean, the, this is the better covenant. This is a this is a, an improved covenant. And um, uh, in one of the articles I'm going to give you guys at the end, uh, the author says it's not like God overpromised 
in the Old Covenant and then under-delivered in the New Covenant. The exact opposite is the case. Things are better in the New Covenant. And so our kids should have greater privileges, greater um, greater um, privileges is the, is the right word, in the New Covenant than they did in the Old Covenant. And we oftentimes treat our kids as outsiders, waiting for them to prove to us that they should be in. And that's the thing, is that they need to be, from day one, treated as an insider until they, uh, God forbid, prove otherwise, and you have to kick them out and hand them over to Satan so that they'll come back. That's part of being one of God's people. So, Joy, as you describe the people of the covenant who are not regenerate, would that be the same, so not even necessarily a proselyte, you know, somebody who's... Uh, gone through all the, the mechan- mechanisms to become Jewish, mm-hmm. but who fears God, would that be what the Bible calls a God-fearer? Then? Yeah, like, I like, think so. Uh, would Cornelius be a God-fearer? Yes, yep. And the centurion, a yes. God-fearer? Okay. Yeah, I, I mean, I, to your that, that exact specific question, I, I could be corrected on that from somebody who knows more, but that's how I would see it. Okay. Absolutely. That's how I was Yeah. I know, I know one of the things that can sometimes give Reformed people some difficulty is when you get into uh, Hebrews chapter 10 and you start reading about what happens for the people who have tasted the goodness of God and they have, they've, they've been a part of his goodness and then they were cast out. This fits in, I mean, not that we're to take scripture and fit it to ourselves, but this method of understanding makes a whole lot more sense if you see these as covenant people who have not been, um, who have not been regenerated, covenant people who are not elect, but who have been given the privileges of the covenant. And one of the things about the covenant is that you get blessings for obedience, but unlike the atheist who never, never, never gets, becomes a part of the covenant, you get additional curses for disobedience. It's like, it's worse for you, as James says, to know the truth and to turn away from it than for the person who's never known. God is the judge. He, he knows how to met out all that justice in the right way. But we do know that if you know the good news and you turn your back on it, there is a bigger, there is a bigger uh, punishment for you. Boy, Joe, I'm going to tell you, um, I, I always struggle with Hebrews 6, what you were just talking about, you know, who have tasted mm-hmm. what you just said, the light went on for me. It really did. Yeah. And I'm glad we're having it. That was what? the work of the Lord, because I think I said Hebrews 10. <laughs> well, and, and I didn't, look, did. at, I didn't look at I he just did. happened to be open to Hebrews 6 because I was thinking about it. Yeah. But the, he right. says, this, he might say it at 10 as well, but yeah. seriously, um, man, the light just went on. He, I've had it explained to me by whoever, man. And sure. That, oh, praise amen, God. Amen to that. Ava. How do you hand someone over to Satan? How do the elders of the church do that? Um, yes, that's a great question. What so she, the, the question was, how does someone get turned over to Satan? Oh. Um, and that's a, it's a church. I'm, I'm not, I've never done it before. <laughs> I'm not a church okay. elder. Um, Turn somebody over to Satan? Yeah. You were an elder, right? I've never been an elder. Oh, I thought you said you were. No, no, no. So the the, the way I've seen it done, because I've, I've, I've been in churches where they practice church discipline. Most churches don't practice church discipline at all. Is that bad? You need to practice church discipline. That's the that's the point. That's why God gave the keys of the kingdom to the to His church. Is this reform? But let's answer your first question. 
So um, to hand someone over to Satan is the final act of disciplining someone to come back to their to the covenant reality that they've been called to, to the name to, to Christ. So somebody is acting in sin, you go to them privately and you and you talk to them about that. If if they won't listen, you go with two or three people. If they won't listen to that. You you turn them over to the church. You you let everybody know, hey, this person. Um, you, we, we can't even eat with them. And then the final act when they've, when they've rejected all other forms is you turn them over to Satan and then you treat them like an unbeliever. And so in some ways, that final stage is when some of that normal relationship can, can come up again. Like you can have them over to dinner again because they're just like a heathen now. Um, but you're turning them over to Satan so that Satan will afflict them. They'll see the errors of their ways and come back to Christ. And Paul said he did that. He did that in that one situation to mortify the flesh, to, to kill the flesh, yeah. so that the spirit may not die. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, like what you said. Right. Cool. Any any other any other right. thoughts or? I think I'm struggling with the you know a little bit of this uh, term of the people of God because you know we're saying that the people of God are everyone that is included in the covenant, well, that means that, you know, it may not, everyone may not be regenerate. Mm-hmm. But to me, the true people of God are the people who are regenerate. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of a dichotomy there for me. I'm like, well, okay. There's two, there's two uh, phrases that you may have heard before, visible church and invisible church. Mm-hmm. I, the visible church are the ones that we see, mm-hmm. just like you would expect. Sure. And they might be elect, they might be regenerate, or they might not be. Mm-hmm. But, you don't know if I'm regenerate. Uh, you know, uh, I've got First Samuel sixteen seven. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. That's not to say that man is should be looking at the heart. We can't look at the heart. Only God can do that. We can only look at the outward appearance. And so, I would want you should see me as one of the people of God, even if my heart is not regenerate. And because I might be a really good faker. <laughs> I might be just totally faking everybody or, or, you know, a variety of other things can happen, you know, we're, but we, but we, but the people who are a part of the visible church and we're moving in a direction here, what exactly constitutes people of the visible church? I think it's one thing. I might not get agreement at the table for what that is, but, um, but who the visible church is and who the invisible church is, the actual elect that will never lose their salvation. Uh, Ephesians 1.14, it's God who works it out in us. Um, they're two different people. Now, let me, let me back that up with a passage from Romans 11. Um, just one verse, Romans 11, verse 7. It says, what then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. So we're talking about one group, the people of God. The one, and, and they were seeking something. They didn't obtain it except for those who were chosen, or, or uh, ESV, I think, says or the elect, or maybe it's the NKJV says the elect. But it says this people were, were seeking something. They didn't find it except for the elect, and the rest of them were hardened off. The rest of them were hardened, and he, was not, he gave, gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not. These were the people of God. And I don't think anybody's going to probably argue that they were uh, regenerate. That God was, you know, taking them out, to, you know, as an act of divine mercy so they could stop being evil on the earth. I think he was, he was putting them to death because they weren't regenerate. They weren't, they didn't have a new heart. They didn't have a heart of flesh, that heart of stone. I, I understand, Lewis, I understand what you're saying, what you're asking. Because 
I couldn't reconcile that either. You know, I thought along the same lines. I, I defined a person of God as, as the a regenerate, as an elect, mm-hmm. as regenerate. Yeah, I think it's just a matter of maybe thinking about a couple different different definitions. But you know, I guess if the Bible is talking about Israel as God's chosen people. That doesn't necessarily mean that all of Israel was elect, right? Right. So it's kind of more of that generic, sure, visible church sense, and that, that yeah. makes sense to me. Yeah. And they just, were and they were the people of God because they had the mark of the covenant because they they were they were they had they were circumcised. And, mm-hmm. You know, they bore they had cut a covenant with God. That's that's literally what it means to make a covenant. Is you cut a covenant, mm-hmm. um, and in the cutting away of the flesh, you are signifying that this will happen to me if I don't stay faithful to the covenant, and that's exactly what happened to them. If the females in, um, in Israel were not circumcised, then how were they part of that body as well? They were under the covenant headship of uh, either they came from the loins of one who was circumcised or they uh, had a husband who was circumcised. So they were, they were always under the headship of, of a covenant head who was circumcised. Is this a minor point there, but when Toby had the little picture of the Israelites out there, and it kind of looked like uh, the uh, group, was it Korah or whatever that the earth opened up? Yeah. I mean, he's, he's certainly alluding to more than that was not part of the covenant, right? Not right. those guys. Exactly. Okay. No, I, I think it was the people who didn't believe to go in the promised land. God turned them around and said, go wander around until you die. Now... We know Moses was regenerate, and so and yet he got turned away too. Yeah, and so right. there's, that's that's. So within that's, that million or several million, or yeah, and whatever. I mean, there was some as Luke was pointing out. Yes, I guess he was pointing this out that some were elect, regenerate mm-hmm. believers, some weren't. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and ultimately, all that is about God. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I mean, Moses not only struck the rock, he spoke to the rock. I mean, God's demonstrated, I am holy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we kind of, we, we don't drift away. We're always tethered to it, but sometimes we just aren't you know, focused mm. and consumed by the fact that God is holy and what that entails and what that means. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we look at this thing, we all have presuppositions about it. No yeah. one reads anything without some established supposition. And covenantal theology allows us to kind of reshape and reform the lens that we look look at God's word and his revelation to us. That's yeah. that's I've been working at this because I'm I'm reformed and yeah. so I I need to be I need to be covenantal, I think. Yeah. It's just everything I'm seeing that I need to be covenantal and as I'm stab- trying to establish myself in that it just makes so much more sense to me. Yeah. I still I still right. have the old, like Luke was just saying, I still have that, I struggle with it, but you yeah. know, I'm gaining more confidence in, yeah. in God's revelation. About yeah. it. His, his point 12, too, was, is everyone in the covenant saved? And he, and he was very specific, saying, no, there are true and false members of the covenant. Only those who are looking to Jesus in true faith are saved. So, mm. so yeah. I want to bring that up just because it's, you know, he did clarify many things. It was just a lot at once. It was. Even even Christ clarified that, though, I feel, with the parable of the sower. Like, there's going to be people who spring up and mm-hmm. things look good, but, you know, down the road, 
it yeah. doesn't uh, it doesn't go well for them. Yeah, exactly. That's true. The sun comes up and nothing's with it. <laughs> a lot of the parables deal kind of deal with yeah. the right. kingdom of God. You know, something you had said earlier, that's about the um, uh, not telling somebody like, oh yeah, go ahead and go read Numbers. <laughs> that's the first yeah. book you read. Um, I actually had a coworker just not that long ago say to me, we were talking about, I was talking to another coworker about going to church and things. And so I tried to read the Bible once. She said, I got as far as I can't remember what book it was. She goes, and I just got so tired of all the so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. She goes, why is all that even in there? And I, and when you said that, you know, you need to see the cover of the puzzle before yeah. you try to put the puzzle together. Because of Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> That's how we get from Adam to yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Like, right. We need Amen. to know that lineage because that lineage is talked about. And I thought when you said that, I was like, oh, yeah, like that's why that's in there. Because yeah. when she said that, I was like, well, I was like trying to come up with how to explain that. And it evaded me in the moment. So it's important for a that. reason. Next time, time we'll get back to you. Next time I see him in the hall, I know why. <laughs> <laughs> it came to me. Yeah. Yeah. Spencer, you want to close this in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for just this um, group of people to get together and study your word and study um, what our life should look like as as your people, God, and um, just getting a greater understanding of who you are um, and how you've structured the world around us. Lord, I pray that you would bless us all as we go into the coming week. And uh, Lord, I just, again, I thank you for your blessings to us and uh, pray for our nation and this upcoming election. Uh, Lord, we know that um, that you will put into power um, whomever you see fit and uh, and for your own purposes and that surpasses our understanding Lord and I thank you for that um, and I just thank you again for, for Joe taking the time to uh, uh, put together this study and uh, and the work he's put into it in spite of uh, his busy life and uh, I pray that you bless him for that pray these things in your name Amen Amen Hey one of the things Elizabeth told me um, today she just said hey you should you know, I know we're all at maybe different points in where we're worshiping right now, you know, in terms of like our local body. Um, and so I don't want to presume anything on anybody. But one of the things she had said is just we should be you guys as a group. Should, or you should encourage us all to be praying about a church in Lewis, Lewis County, a reformed church in Lewis County. Mm-hmm. You know, even if it's not something you were ever going to be a part of, it would be it would this. I think this community could really benefit our parish could really benefit in a huge way by having by having the reformed theology taught in a in a way that is gives honor to god so um i know it's something that elizabeth and i pray about um we try to pray about it every day uh but if you guys think about it uh, that would be i i think would be huge huge uh blessing to do that